Okay, Jesse, last story was an absolute ride. What is the story this week? When a successful young Yale graduate is found murdered in a hotel room, the detectives have to go to great lengths to uncover a web of diabolical deceit to bring the killer or killers to justice. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about schemers, scammers, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five star rating on your podcast app, subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. This week had to be the best crop of reviews I've seen yet. You guys are phenomenal. <laughs> the best crop. Yeah, no, it it was. I do love what you did there, though, with the crop. I did crop. We were told we were corny, but it was very sweet, actually. It was very sweet. So, yes, thank you guys so much for those reviews this week. If you are interested in supporting us more directly, we do have a Patreon now. So you can go to patreon.com slash lovemurder and you can read up on all the different tiers of support. And this month is an amazing month to join because we have a ton of content coming your way and our water bottles are coming in. Oh, yay, water bottles. Yep. So you're going to be hydrated while you're listening to all that fresh content coming your way. Exactly. You got to not let yourself get parched, you know. <laughs> Don't be thirsty for new content. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, speaking of Patreon, we are ecstatic this week to welcome and shout out a new set of amazing patrons. Julie M. and Jasmine. Ashley C. and Kiki H. And Jenny M. and Misty B. Welcome, you guys. And if you were around last week, you know that we are going to be highlighting a different organization that supports victims and survivors of domestic violence this month for Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And so this week, we will be donating, and we'd be happy if you wanted to join us, to the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Nicole H. is one of our buddies on the discussion group, and she's also a social worker. And she was the one who recommended that we highlight this organization. The National Domestic Violence Hotline offers support, resources, and hope for anyone in the United States affected by domestic violence. And if you ever feel like you recognize yourself in one of our stories, I highly, highly encourage you to reach out to the hotline. Yes. Thank you for your advice and guidance, Nicole. Yes, absolutely. It's very nice to have social worker listeners who can help steer us in the right direction. All right. Speaking of directions, this is a rough story to listen to today. I will make sure to trigger warn you guys in the right areas. This is a story that's very senseless. It's about greed. It's about corruption. It's, it's just about the seedy underbelly of life. And I think without further ado, we should jump into it. Probably. 24-year-old Catherine Martini was the total package. Smart, successful, generous, and loving. There wasn't a straight man alive who wouldn't have been interested in the pretty brunette. 
In May of 1983, though, romance wasn't foremost on her mind. She had recently moved across the country for her demanding finance career and had been settling into the Portland, Oregon area and making friends in a professional women's group. But she needed something to unwind, to blow off some steam, and she'd been looking for a fun hobby, something maybe reminiscent of her college days on the Yale swim team as a diver, when she stumbled across scuba diving, and specifically a couple scuba shops that offered diving instruction. It seemed like the perfect activity to pick up on the weekends. Kathy signed up for classes and realized after a lesson or two that she might have picked up more than just a hobby. 34-year-old scuba instructor and owner of the two scuba shops, Michael Lissy, was completely taken with Catherine. And his charm and similar Ivy League pedigree, he had gone to Harvard and Oxford, won her over pretty darn quickly. Michael is not exactly what you'd expect looks-wise from a guy who's kind of an adventurer or at least bills himself that way and is a scuba guy. He's not like a super buff wetsuit dude. That's not his thing. He's kind of a little schlubby. Schlubby? So what he didn't have in the classically good-looking department, he apparently made up for by having this huge personality, and he was evidently very intelligent, or at least... <laughs> and he's just holding up her hands, like, like he's got to get big something else, if you huge know what Huge personality. A huge, huge personality. personality. <laughs> Yeah, so maybe. I cannot verify that speculation. (laughs) But he did have, apparently, a very nice personality. And she must have found him intelligent because she was a very smart woman herself. I mean, Harvard and Oxford, so. Yes, clearly. So she was really into this. And she kind of liked also how he pursued her, how passionate he was. And they had a very whirlwind romance. Within two months of meeting, Michael moved into Catherine's condo with her, which was apparently in a very nice area. It's like in a little suburb of Portland overlooking Lake Oswego. And only six months after that, they got married. A pen pal that I had when I was in like third grade moved to Lake Oswego. Really? Yeah. That's the only thing I know about it, but it's supposed to be so spectacular. But I'm already throwing red flags up at all of this. Yes, a lot of red flags about the speed at which this relationship is progressing. Yeah. Dynamic Catherine had always made things that other people found difficult look easy, like getting into Yale. And finding the love of her life was no different. No one could have ever imagined that the love story would come to a violent and homicidal end only six months later. Today's episode is a tale of greed, rampant infidelity, and a gross killer who thought that they were smart enough to get away with it but spoiler alert they were not good they usually aren't yeah (laughs) they most of the times they're not it'd be sad if that wasn't your order of events exactly my primary sources today was the book murder in room 305 by gary king which was previously published as Web of Deceit. And my uh, dumbass accidentally bought both. <laughs> oh my God, stop. <laughs> this is the problem of buying all used books and thrift books is that I bought the previously titled book and the same book under a new title. <laughs> Did you start reading it and you're like, what the fuck? I think I've read this. Uh-huh. Uh-huh, that's amazing. I finally organized all of my books this week, and I did find a couple doubles. There's a couple situations because I get my books from all over the place. 
And uh, this was one that I was laughing because I was like, I have to find the book for this week. And then I found it. I was like, oh, I found two of them because they have different titles. Oh, my God. I also watched an episode of ID's The Perfect Murder, season two, episode nine, called Hotel Homicide. So let's jump off by discussing our recent West Coast transplant, Catherine. Catherine Ann Martini was born on April 28th, 1958, to a loving and well-respected New York City-based family. She was one of three sisters whose parents instilled in them a very strong value system based around honesty and kindness. Kathy's parents were also unconditionally supportive of all of her pursuits. Catherine, or Kathy as was her nickname, was naturally bright and pretty self-motivated. So those characteristics, plus the foundation of love and support that her parents gave her, really helped propel her to success. Catherine attended Yale University after high school graduation. While completing her degree in economics, she also dove for the swim team, started a women's awareness group, and volunteered at the local YWCA as a big sister. Everyone described her as a popular and intelligent student. After graduation from college, Kathy was hired by the First National Bank of Boston and transferred to Portland, Oregon in 1982, where she became one of the bank's first female commercial loan officers who only dealt with deals over $1.5 million. Wow. That is adjusted for inflation. I did that one for you guys. But still, only deals over $1.5 million. That's crazy. I think it's more crazy that she's the first female one doing it. But <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah, that's 1982, and she was the first female commercial loan officer. Well, it was the, for the Bank of Boston specifically. Wow, so. you can do math? <laughs> Unbelievable. At only 24, Kathy had already achieved tremendous success. She was an absolute dynamo, even getting elected as the president of the Network of Business and Professional Women of Portland shortly after arriving on the West Coast. She was the youngest woman to ever hold the position. Unbelievable. I looked at her and I said, wow, this is an example of what women can do today, said Carol Barkley, one of the group's vice presidents, soon after meeting Kathy. She's what you would visualize if you had to pick a representative of a successful young business person today. Everything in her life seemed golden. In May of 1983, Kathy's life got even richer when she went out for that fateful scuba lesson and came back with a boyfriend. Michael Lissy was just short of a decade older than Catherine. And like I said, definitely not like what you'd think from like a super sexy scuba guy, but was exceedingly charming and very sweet. I love how your scuba guy is super sexy. I don't know. I just imagine him as like kind of Bond like, like he's like down in the water. He also told her all these things. Like she was telling her friends he's fascinating. He is so well educated. He went to Harvard, he went to Oxford. He has diving contracts with the Department of Defense and the Department of State. She said that he would get these top secret calls sometimes and he would explain some parts of his work, but there was other parts that he couldn't explain. And then he also told her how he had done a few dives for the National Geographic Society. So she was thrilled. She thought he was really interesting. And that's why I'm, I think I'm maybe imagining more of a Indiana Jones guy here. Yeah. Than, than your typical scuba diving instructor. <laughs> but yeah, so she was completely into him and everything he did seemed really exciting. And her friends and her family definitely felt like she maybe had really met her match. This was a guy that could really hold his own with her. He could hold her interest. 
he seemed like he had the similar pedigree that she had and they really enjoyed each other's company. So when you know, you know, or when you shouldn't, you shouldn't. But here we go. The couple moved in together less than two months after meeting in early July of 1983. And then they wed the following January in 1984. But they likely would have gotten married even sooner if they weren't waiting for Michael to finalize his divorce from his ex-wife. When did that come up? So it's still we'll get into it later on. If it's clear if there was already a separation and it was just kind of finishing off the divorce or if there was maybe some infidelity. However, if there was any infidelity, it was definitely not on Catherine's no, yeah. understanding. She had no knowledge of it. From her understanding was there was no wife in the picture. And then it was just when they were getting ready to get married. He's like, actually, I'm still finalizing my divorce from my ex-wife, which it did go through in December and the couple wasted very little time making their relationship official. Catherine became the new Mrs. Lissy about a month afterwards. Kathy's best friend said that she was really, truly very deeply in love with Michael and believed in him, believed in his business acumen. I guess there were some problems with one of the scuba shops or there were some debt issues and she was trying to help him because she was such a good financial mind get out of those problems. And her friend said that she 100% believed in him completely. According to people who knew the couple, all seemed very well in their still new marriage. On Thursday morning, July 5th, 1984, Kathy drove two hours from their condo just outside of Portland to Eugene, Oregon for business. Kathy and Michael had been married for just about six months at this time, and business trips to Eugene were a matter of course for Kathy. She usually traveled once or twice a month. That Thursday, Kathy checked into a four-star hotel called the Valley River Inn, and into room 305. She attended several meetings and a business luncheon before arriving back to the hotel later in the evening. At 6.30 p.m., she dined alone at the hotel restaurant, working throughout dinner and enjoying two glasses of wine. And I kind of love this. She had a glass of white wine with her appetizer and then a glass of red wine with her prime rib, and I am all about a pairing. Oh, yeah, for sure. Your dad is, though, too, so it makes sense that you are. He instilled it in me, and for some reason, to me, it just is like the height of luxurious dining is to pair every food with a beverage. So yeah, she did that. She was apparently working. She had some paperwork in front of her, so she was doing work throughout dinner. She was completely by herself. She was very polite, and she left around 7.30. The next morning, housekeeper Martha Chamberlain was surprised to see when she peeked into the door to open it up to clean that there was a bag on the floor and that she could hear the TV on. So she immediately assumed somebody was still in the room, although Kathy was supposed to be checked out at that point. Okay. So she said, hi, is anyone there? I'm here to clean the room. And when no one answered, she just was like, you know what? I'm coming back later. So she shut the door. She went out. She did the rest of her rounds. And she did not return to the room until 3 p.m. And this was like the end of her rounds and she needs to clean this room now. So she knocks on the door and she opens it again and everything's in the same place. The TV is still on. The bag's still in the same place. She's like, uh-oh, okay. Hey, I'm coming in. Is anyone there? And they don't respond again. And when she walked in, she saw why. She discovered that Kathy was lying completely motionless, wearing only a mesh shirt and a bra with nothing else on, sprawled face down on the bed. Martha realized very quickly she didn't go up and touch her. She didn't investigate. She didn't see if she was breathing. She 
at least as it was described to me, almost immediately knew that she was no longer yeah. alive. And so she ran out as fast as she could, and she ran to the hotel's administrative office, where she instructed the hotel's assistant manager to immediately call 911. After the paramedics arrived, they noted that it was pretty obvious that Kathy was beyond saving. It appeared that she had been deceased since the night before, based on the lividity of the body. The police found the room orderly. Kathy's clothes hung neatly in the closet. There was not any sign of a major struggle. Beside the bed, the only thing that was out of place was that they discovered her pants inside out and discarded, like potentially they could have been ripped off of her. And they also found an unwrapped tampon next to the bed as well, but it did not appear to have been used. Okay. And the autopsy would later show that Kathy was not menstruating at the time of her murder. So the tampon is a little bit of a mystery. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah. It was clear before they even turned Kathy over that there had been an assault, that foul play was at play here because there was a bald spot on her head and then on the bed there was a tuft of hair. So, oh, God. Yeah, it appeared that the killer had ripped a chunk of her hair out during the assault. They thought burglary may have been a motivation because Kathy's wallet was missing from her purse. They went through her purse trying to find her wallet to identify her. The wallet was gone. There was some other things that were missing from the room as well. Using the hotel and DMV records, the police were able to positively identify Catherine and reach out to Michael to ask him to come to Eugene with photos of his wife to double check and confirm that this was actually Kathy Lissy. Michael had a friend drive him to the hotel and he seemed genuinely devastated when the detectives told him that Catherine was deceased and that foul play was suspected. Well, Michael said that he couldn't think of anyone specifically who had any sort of grudge against Catherine, who was lovely and had no enemies. He did admit that she had a drug habit and often bought cocaine while she was on business in Eugene. Michael said that while Kathy was only a social drinker, she did quite enjoy cocaine and also MDMA. When asked about the potential of another man in Kathy's life, Michael admitted that the couple was in an open marriage and both had other casual sex partners. Mm, this all sounds really convenient. Yeah. I mean, just think about everything we know about Kathy so far. This just does not complete the picture of a super dynamic, motivated, ambitious woman. Which I'm sure there's some super motivated, ambitious women that dabble in cocaine and have extramarital affairs. Yeah, but... and this is also the 80s. Like, I feel like so, people were doing so maybe, coke. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe. Who knows? I'm not going to cast judgment on anybody's lifestyle choices, but it just did not seem to jive with no. everything. Yeah. Yeah, so she, he also said that he believed she may have had an ex-lover in the Eugene area named Jay, but he didn't know where this guy lived and he didn't even know his last name. When the investigators asked Michael well, what do you think could have possibly happened to Kathy? He said, well, it's possible that she'd been killed in a drug deal gone wrong or an affair that had gotten out of hand. The investigators thought that was a very convenient answer for a man that had just been told that his wife had been murdered for him to just be like, well, I don't know. I guess she went to the wrong drug dealer. Yeah. Like, are you a detective now? Yeah. So it's very strange. And also you and I both raised our eyebrows about him characterizing Catherine this way. And even the investigators thought it was strange because they had talked to the hotel 
staff. They had talked to some of her coworkers, I believe, at this point. And they had also just looked at the room. The room was perfectly orderly. I mean, she's there for one night and she hung up all her clothes. I go away for two weeks and I don't hang up my clothes. She definitely didn't seem like that type of people. The, the investigators are also saying, like, we've investigated a lot of drug-related murders, and they don't look anything like this. A four-star no. hotel, everything's neat as a pin, and there's no drug-related paraphernalia or drugs in, found in the home. Also, like, pairing red wine with your steak isn't really the pregame type of meal. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> You're like, I'm going to have a shrimp cocktail and a nice uh, pinot gris, and then I'm going to move on to the prime rib in a cabernet, and then for dessert, I'm going to do a pile of cocaine. Yeah, no. <laughs> says no one. <laughs> it's like barf station. <laughs> So naturally, they asked Michael about his whereabouts that evening that Kathy was killed. And he claimed that he had been working all day at his various scuba shops. He'd gone from one to the other twice. He said he was working until 6.30 p.m. when he went out for drinks with one of his employees. He stopped at a friend's house on his way home. And then he said he believed he arrived home sometime around 9.30, 9.45 and ended up going to bed. What a busy little bee. Busy little bee, but still goes to bed kind of early, I got to say. Yeah, I think that's just convenient. He said the last time he spoke to Kathy was a telephone call around noon when she told him that she had forgotten to bring toothpaste on her trip. This is very weird, too, because this is like his excuse. But why wouldn't you talk to your partner at some point before they go to bed? Isn't that I mean, I guess some people probably don't do that. So I don't want to like generalize, but like. Usually when people are, especially when you've only been married for six months, you'd think you'd want to like chat a little bit more at night when you're both off work. Yeah. And so it was strange that he wasn't alarmed. A little bit strange. And what's extra strange is that later when they went through her toiletries. She she had toothpaste. She had toothpaste. So what a weird thing to say. Yeah. He's just making up lies. Mm -hmm. I'm raising my eyebrow, but you can't tell because of my (laughs) mustache. They let Michael return to Portland and they reviewed the autopsy results. The medical examiner found that Catherine had been asphyxiated. She was specifically strangled to death with some type of ligature. They believed it wasn't a super thin one based on the marks. So they think maybe it could be possibly something like a belt. Kathy did also have a small abrasion inside of her vagina. Now, this could be sign of rape. But it could have also been potentially consensually rougher sex at that level of what the abrasion was. It was minor enough that it's an injury that could have occurred just with run-of-the-mill sex. Or it could have been caused even by an inanimate object like a dildo or a vibrator or something like that. Okay. Not a tampon? Probably not a tampon based on where the abrasion was is from what I understand. But I don't know. Based on Kathy's last meal in her stomach, the medical examiner estimated that she had been killed within a few hours of her dinner. So she could have been killed as early as 8.30 to 9.30, though, depending on how her metabolism works and how she digests, it could have been a little bit later. But it could have happened as early as an hour after she left dinner. With all of this information, the police began to theorize what could have happened. Walking down the drug deal gone wrong path, they theorized that potentially cocaine had been delivered to Kathy by a woman, a quote, bag bitch. Uh, excuse me? So this was in the book and on the show. 
They theorized that maybe the cocaine had come to Kathy delivered by a bag bitch, which is apparently a slang term for a woman who mules cocaine in her vagina. And they, they said that women who do this oftentimes use a tampon to keep the cocaine in their vagina. Well, when you said that there was an unused tampon, I thought that maybe there was another woman at the scene of the crime, but I d- also didn't know of the term bag bitch, so that's new to me as well. So yes, they a quote bag bitch who had put the cocaine in her vagina and the unused tampon to hold it into place. So then they thought maybe there had been a guy and a girl drug dealer and maybe things have gone awry about arguing about price or that potentially even the drug dealers had noticed how much money she had on her because Michael said that she was carrying $800 in cash on her body. Okay. I think this is pretty ridiculous for a couple reasons. Is that true? Well, I mean, it's true that people in life do that. No, yes. I mean, like, did she have $800 on her at the time? Like, We don't know because her wallet was stolen. Oh, also convenient. Yeah, so he's saying that he gave her... deposit from the scuba store and that also he had given her $300 before she left just unrelated just for like pocket change or something so he believed she still had $800 on her person at the time that she was robbed which was not found in the hotel room yeah because it was robbed but I mean honestly we should think about opening a scuba store if that's the type of thing (laughs) I think ridiculous because there's just no evidence that she was doing drugs The autopsy also didn't show any drugs in her system. And the other thing is that I just have to say, I completely understand that people mule drugs that way all the time. But I don't think that's how drug dealers deliver the drugs to their clients. Can you imagine? It's like the drug dealer comes in and you're like, okay, where's my stuff? And then he's like, Natasha, go. She like pulls it out. Pulls it out, unthrows it on your floor, and then pulls your gram of cocaine out. And the tampon would also be used at that point. It would be used, exactly. This whole theory is ridiculous. It's so insane. This is like Ocean's Eleven version of what <laughs> happened. Yes. Well, it's also, Michael said that when she was in Eugene, she would sometimes pick up a gram of cocaine, which at the time in this area cost like $100 to $125 for a gram. A gram, I don't think, is very much. It's a tiny little packet. It does not require you putting it up your vagina and putting a tampon in. No. I mean, you you, you no. could throw that no. in a lot of other places. We're not talking about a condom full of heroin here, people. So this is an absurd theory. We're throwing that one right out. We're just, it's gone. Bye. We can't do that. So then they went down the whole Does she have a lover? Is it somebody else? Is there a love triangle here? And they just really couldn't find anything. They couldn't find any strange phone calls, any patterns of behavior, anyone, any coworkers, any friends who knew of any sort of side piece. And in fact, nobody even knew that they allegedly had an open marriage. So there was just nowhere to go on that front. It just didn't seem like she was truly sleeping with anyone else. The way that Michael was presenting his wife was just completely incongruous with the picture that everyone else had of Kathy, of this completely responsible, ambitious, hardworking, in love with her husband, successful Ivy League graduate. 
It just didn't seem like some of the things that he was saying about her seemed altogether accurate. And we always know, of course, people are very good at hiding things and having double lives. But the police's intuition said that the picture of Kathy that they were getting from Michael just was not correct. Based on the autopsy and alibi, it was also possible that Michael could have driven to Eugene, killed his wife, and returned afterwards between the time he supposedly left his friend's house if he drove straight, then killed her and returned. It still would have been in the window of a possible murder time. Moreover, the night clerk picked Michael's photo out of a lineup and said she recalled him being in the hotel lobby around midnight on the night of the murder. Now, there's no security footage. There's nothing that can corroborate this other than she looked at a whole bunch of pictures and they didn't tell her which one was who and his face hadn't been on the news or anything. And she was like, oh, yeah, that guy was in the lobby. In a follow-up interview, Michael categorically denied being in Eugene or anywhere near the Valley River Inn. He did, however, decide to come clean about something else. He said that the autopsy is probably going to show that he and Kathy had been diagnosed with a sexually transmitted disease only a week or two before the murder. (sighs) He said that it was likely that it was one of his partners, not hers, who gave it to the couple. This gave the investigators another explanation for the tampon because they say unused. I think that they just mean not bloody. They thought maybe she was using it to prevent some discharge leakage from the STD and her assailant removed it before the sexual assault. I don't know. I feel like you could pick that stuff up off a tampon. Yeah, I've never heard of that either. Michael claimed he didn't know anything about Kathy's will or if she had a life insurance policy at all. The police looked into it themselves and they discovered that Kathy did indeed have a company issued policy that listed Michael as the beneficiary. The amount awarded would be $37,000, which is not a whole lot to kill for. But should Kathy die while at work or on a business trip, then the policy would pay out an additional $200,000. He's disgusting. Mm -hmm. Thus bringing up the total to just around $240,000, which is about $685,000 in today's money. Oh, my God. Over half a mil. Jesus. What a coincidence that she happened to be murdered while she was on business. That coincidence paired with the fact that it seemed as though Michael had potentially been lying about Kathy's lifestyle, had clearly given her an STD, and was potentially caught by the clerk at the hotel the night of the murder. Yeah, the cops have to be like, ding, 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 ding. Oh, they are like on him like everything. They are side-eyeing him so hard. But so far, they could not find any physical evidence that placed Michael in that hotel room. They took his prints. They took his hair. They took everything. And there was nothing. There was no physical evidence whatsoever that he had been in Eugene. It was just the testimony of a night clerk that said she thought it was the guy. Yeah, and how does he even get in there? Like, how does he even get in the room? Well, I mean... He could have told her that he was coming to surprise her. And she opened the door like, surprise, I came to visit you. I missed you so much. The first break in the case happened when 17-year-old Molly Griggs called the police after reading about Kathy's murder in the newspaper on July 9th, 1984. Molly was a sex worker who had been employed by Michael from time to time. She's also this poor kid. She's 17 years old. 
And he didn't always hire her just for sex. Michael had paid Molly $100 to call a woman on the phone and intimidate her. Molly told the police that she did not know who the woman was, but it was clear that this woman had some knowledge that Michael didn't want out there. He threatened to expose some previous activities the woman wasn't proud of if she wouldn't keep her mouth shut. While arranging these blackmail phone calls, Michael had grown comfortable with Molly, so much so that he asked her if she could arrange a hit for him. He said he wanted a young woman to be strangled in a way that it would look like the motivation was sexual assault or robbery. He also told Molly that there were a few other people he needed bumped off as well. He wanted a young man roughed up, maybe murdered, and then an old couple on the coast. What? Yeah, this is what Molly's telling the police. So she told him, yeah, I'll ask around. I'll see what I can dig up for you. But of course, didn't. She wanted nothing to do with this. And she had mostly tried to put it out of her mind until she read about this guy's wife and how she was murdered, which was in exactly the same scenario that he had pitched her on. And then she said she screamed to her boyfriend. He did it. He really did it. He killed her. And her boyfriend encouraged her to come forward. Thankfully, she did. So who is this real dirtball? And who are the other people that he may have wanted to murder? And I think everyone's burning question was, did he really go to Harvard and Oxford? I could answer that last one. I think, Andy, you can answer that last one for us already. I think not. Absolutely not. This guy is a liar, liar, pants on fire. Andy, I could not be more excited to share today's sponsor with our listeners. With Masterclass, you can learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere, and at your own pace. You can learn how to cook from Gordon Ramsay, improve your interior design skills from my favorite, Kelly Wurstler, or learn the science of problem solving from Bill Nye. With over 150 classes from a range of world-class instructors, that thing you've always wanted to do is closer than you think. Masterclass classes are accessible however you want to watch, via phone, web, or smart TV. Each class is broken out into individual lessons that are usually about 10 minutes long and are supported with additional materials to help members learn. These are cinema-quality classes that give you unparalleled access to a renowned instructor and annual membership that starts at just $180 a year. There have been a ton of classes that I've loved on Masterclass. Neil Gaiman, who wrote one of my favorite books of all time, American Gods, has an art of storytelling class that was so good, I made my brother, my aspiring author brother Johnny T, watch it as well. I was also checking out some of their newer classes, and the quality is just mind-blowing. The Duffer Brothers, a.k.a. Stranger Things, have a class that they just launched on developing an original television series. Oh, I just saw that one. I haven't watched it yet, but that looks so good. The one I'm most excited about right now is a new class from Esther Perel on a relational intelligence. So she's a very, very famous marriage and family therapist. She's written all of these incredible books that I've read about couples therapy. And she's taking lessons she originally learned studying romantic relationships and applying them to all of the relationships in our lives. That definitely sounds like something that most of the people in our stories could have used. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll be excited to incorporate what I've learned in that class in some future shows. We highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every class 
And as a Love Murder listener, you get 15% off an annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash lovemurder now. That's masterclass.com slash lovemurder for 15% off Masterclass. Michael David Lissy was born Michael Reed on March 18th, 1949 in San Diego, California. His parents split up when he was still a little kid and his biological father took off. He was eventually adopted by his stepfather, but didn't end up changing his last name to Lissy until he was an adult. Where did he pull that name from? It was his stepfather's name. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Michael was a smart guy insofar as he was a really good scammer, but no, he did not attend an institution of higher learning. He also had a shocking amount of bad luck, wink, wink, as an adult. He had reported that he had been robbed in 1976, 1977, and 1981. Naturally, everything stolen from his house was covered by insurance. So he was able to recoup tens of thousands of dollars each and every time. And also, of course, his scuba shops had been broken into a couple of times as well. Yeah, sure. The police managed to hunt down a friend of his who admitted that when the two men had worked together at Kentucky Fried Chicken, Michael had faked an armed robbery to cover up the fact that he had been stealing from the restaurant. What? Yeah, so he had been taking money from the cash register and people were beginning to notice it and he tried to cover it up by pretending like there had been an armed robbery and they had stolen $1,200 from How the safe. How do you like pretend he, that? He tied he, like, himself pistol up. pistol whip himself? Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. I think that this friend was kind of involved in helping him set this up, but they were trying to be honest with the police so they could get a little immunity about past sins when they were interviewed about all of this stuff. So he said, yep, he did that. And then he also, he decided to double down after faking the burglary to cover up his stealing. He started wearing a neck brace around so he could file for a worker's comp claim as well. Wow. I mean, I'm not like, I don't feel bad for Kentucky Fried Chicken, but this is just. (laughs) Oh, he also had a chicken hustle going on, like an actual poultry hustle. What do you mean? So at this point, I do not know anything about how to run a KFC franchise, obviously. But you don't. This... <laughs> my side hustle is is having a KFC franchise. Oh, why do you think my mashed potatoes are always so good? <laughs> no, I do not. I absolutely do not. However, as it was described in Gary King's book, that at this time, or at least this franchise, that KFC as a parent company provided very high quality chickens. It's because they wanted all of the chicken across the United States or of their brands to be of a high quality uniformly. And so if you were a franchise owner, you had to buy the high quality chicken from the parent company. He would take the high quality chicken and sell it. And then he'd purchase like shitty gross chicken and use that for the restaurant. And he'd keep the margin for himself. I mean, that's like kind of entrepreneurial. I mean, but also, what kind of margin are you really getting on stolen nice chicken versus shitty gross chicken? The time on task here, are you making enough of a margin to be doing all of that shady shit? I mean, it's that's like the restaurant shades. I remember working at a restaurant and walking in the bar room, like where you keep all the liquor, and I saw my friends filling up a Belvedere bottle with like really bad not even (laughs) vodka and water and i was like what is going on oh 
That is a hustle. Hustle. So the informant had a ton of information on other scams that Michael had tried to pull off. The most relevant to this case being a plot to kill his then wife, Frankie. I like her name. I do too. So it was Frances Frankie May Schuster. And she had married Michael on April 30th, 1978. Now, Frankie was not Michael's first wife. Oh, my God. I don't know if Catherine knew this, but she was actually his fourth wife. Catherine was his fourth wife. Yes. So he had been married to another woman who very vociferously did not want to be included in this narrative at all. Apparently, the cops had a very difficult time even tracking her down. I don't think she spoke to the cops after all. So his first wife... GTFO. Like she was gone. She didn't want anything to do with him or this situation. Good for her. I mean, if she's like wanted to stay away from him, good on her. Based on how this story unfolds, I think she made the correct choice. And what he told Frankie about his first wife was that she had died. I don't believe that that was the case, obviously, because I think they did find her later on. And he made up some stories, but she said that she did notice that his stories about his first wife were always changing. And they had decided to get married after they discovered that Frankie was pregnant. But they were only married for three months when she found out that he was cheating on her with multiple women, some sex workers, some not, many of whom were underage, like full on 15 year old girls. Yes. Frankie also found out when one of Michael's friends came to her and said, hey, Just so you know, Micah's been making some like weird jokes. They don't seem like they're jokes about how he got a life insurance policy on you with double indemnity. And he's kind of like seeing if any of our friends would consider just elbowing you down the stairs and making it look like a robbery gone wrong. And she's like, what? And he's like, I could be wrong. It could be like a weird sixth sense of humor. But I just had to tell you because I would never live myself if I hadn't. Those people are amazing for saying fuck off think about all of the times that we hear about somebody saying i don't know i just thought it was a joke i thought that was just their sense of humor i thought it was just a weird thing to say and they don't tell the person that that's affecting so thankfully this person did and she did find out he had a policy on her that she didn't know about (gasps) she canceled it right away and then she moved out and filed for divorce good for her And she's pregnant now, too. So she's doing this all pregnant, having to start over, realizing all of this horrible shit and that maybe the father of her baby was also trying to kill her. And at first she did try to get support, but then she realized that no amount of money was worth having him in their life at all. So she's like, I'm taking back my motion for support and I want you to have nothing to do with my child at all. Yep. Good for her. That's really hard. Really hard. She's really brave. And she moved really fast. I mean, to prioritize her safety and her child's safety like that is, it's pretty incredible. So one of the women that he had been cheating on Frankie with was a 20-year-old named Elise Dunn, who goes by a pseudonym in this. So in this account, she is called Elise, but that was not her real name. The couple married as soon as the ink was dry on Michael's divorce from Frankie, making Elise the third Mrs. Lissy. And this is the woman that Michael had divorced in order to marry Catherine. Yep. Okay. Well, Elise wasn't super hard to track down because I think around the first time that they interviewed her, but not weeks later because she eventually quit, she was still working at his scuba shop. And I do think 
Catherine knew this, that his ex-wife was still working at the shop with him. He was deeply ingrained in her life. I think as the events that we're discussing are going down, she's maybe 25-ish at this point. She explained that she had met Michael at 20 and that she had had an affair with him. The couple was married for four years just about before Catherine came along. She admitted that Michael had asked her to do several different illegal things. He asked her to cook the books to make it look like the scuba shops were making less money than they were. She said that any extra cash that he stole from the register went to sex workers. She said that throughout her own marriage with him and Catherine's marriage to Michael, Michael had hired women for sex often up to three times a day. Oh, my God. She described him as having a disturbing and insatiable sexual appetite. Elise told the authorities that she had been young and naive when she first got together with Michael, and he had put her in several compromising positions. He had done things like, this is just like a trigger warning just for like thematic, like abuse of a partner, like not physical, but just like pushing them into situations. So sexual, let's say sexual assault of a partner. He would force her into sex work against her will. So she said straight up they were losing money. He has all these schemes on schemes on schemes. He's not working. He's spending it on coke and sex workers. And so now he's like, well, you have to make some money. And, you know, you're so hot. You should probably just get into sex work yourself. And she's like, I don't want to have sex for money. And he's like, "Okay, well, then you should be a stripper. She's like, I also don't want to do that. And they finally landed on her working in a massage parlor. And that was on his insistence that she do that. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with working at a massage parlor, but when your yes, partner was forced she didn't you want to. to. Yeah. Yes. And I think that even though he was saying it was about money and he took all her money, it was also a control, power dynamic and sexual fantasy for him. I mean, money was tight. It was always tight because like I said, he was blowing it all on drugs and sex and by the time that he met Catherine, he was over $100,000 in debt. Jesse. And I didn't translate that one, but that's like 1983 money. So that's a lot of money. After meeting Kathy, he told Elise that he was using Kathy to get a loan for his failing scuba business. When the loan wasn't approved, he told Elise he was just going to have to marry Kathy to secure a loan from Kathy's father. He told Elise that he needed to divorce her, but he would be simply using Catherine to get money and it wasn't a real marriage and that he planned on getting rid of her and he would return to Elise and they would get remarried. He went so far as to beg her to pretend that they were still married around her family so that the family wouldn't know. And he even had her call up the newspaper and pretend to be Catherine because Catherine had put a wedding announcement in the local newspaper. And he didn't want Elise's family to see that he was married or anyone to see that he was married. So he had Elise call the paper, pretend to be Catherine and say, actually, the wedding didn't go through. Can you pull the announcement? Wow, that is so low. So they get to the ex-wife and she is downloading all of this dirt. Yeah, without any hesitation. I don't think she was excited because also some of the stuff we're going to get into incriminates her as well. She helped set up the fake robberies of... I believe two of the scuba shops and one of the burglaries that happened supposedly at their home. And so she's part of it. So she was scared at this point. She also didn't necessarily believe when she was in it with Michael that 
he meant he was going to kill her by saying, I'll get rid of her. But something happened that made her feel otherwise. She said that on the Saturday that Elise found out that Kathy had been murdered, Michael asked her to come to his condo and he was very desperate and he gave her a piece of paper and asked her to destroy it. It was a flyer for a sale for the scuba shop on one side and on the other, he had written the number 305. He told Elise that it was a phone number related to Kathy's drug connection and that he wanted her to destroy it so Kathy's family wouldn't be embarrassed when they found out that she had used drugs. She thought it was odd that it was only three numbers. And then he did admit that it was actually a room number at a local Portland hotel where one could go to buy drugs. She forgot about it until the police arrived and was able to retrieve the paper. She asked if 305 had been Kathy's hotel room when she was murdered. And of course, it was. Oh, my God. So she had still been semi-involved with him until this point where she's like, he's really a killer. And he's also done a lot of other dangerous things. And going to the police was her best bet at her own survival. Yeah, for sure. She had also started dating somebody new and started trying to pull away from him and build her own life. She certainly wasn't pining for him. These were all things he said to her about what he wanted to do. She didn't really want to remarry him at all. So she had started dating a new guy. And when he started coming on heavy about how I'm going to get rid of Catherine and we're going to be together, she was like, no, I'm actually really happy. I've moved on. I've met this person and I really like being with him. And he's like, no, you're going to get rid of him or I'll get rid of him for you. And it turns out that that was the young man that he wanted terrifically beat or maybe murdered that he referenced when he was talking to Molly about getting somebody killed. And then they also found out that the elderly couple on the coast was just an old couple that was blocking a business deal of his parents. And he wanted to bump them off because it was ruining his parents' business deal based on, I think, where they lived. Uh... What's more is that Elise didn't even realize how close she had come to a tragic loss in her own family shortly after wedding Michael. Michael's buddy said that he had asked them to bump off Elise's mother while they were there moving furniture for her. What? So she had asked her new son-in-law to move some furniture in her house. Like, do you know any young men who can help me move some furniture around my house? And he said yes. And then he's like, hey, well, you guys are over there. If you get the opportunity try to throw her down the stairs or something, do something that ends her life because if she dies, Elise gets all her money and I'm married to Elise, so then I get everything as well. Oh my God. And his friends had to have been like, what the fuck is wrong with you? First of all, I think that a lot of these guys were of a criminal element themselves. And I think that the other thing is a lot of people thought he was just kind of a weird fucking bullshitter. They asked if Elise knew of this plan and the friends said no. They said that Elise absolutely didn't know he said Michael said he could play the stricken man and such and comfort Elise. Seemed like it was just another one of his ideas, you know, if he could find somebody that was stupid enough to do it for him to reap the profits. Jesus. So it seemed pretty clear at this point to the police that Michael was not the type of guy who ever did his own dirty work. So they're now theorizing, even though the night clerk thinks that she saw him that maybe he did hire somebody because every one of these conversations is coming up with him trying to hire somebody. So they decide they were going to canvas local sex workers, other types of like kids on the street, drug dealers whom Michael may have asked to murder his wife, just like he had asked Molly Griggs. 
So they did find one young man who had agreed to kill Kathy for $1,000 and a three fifty seven Magnum that Michael said he would provide and then the kid could keep. This time, it was supposed to look like a carjacking or a drug deal gone wrong. So I don't know how he was expecting to cash in on the money on that one unless it was while she was on the business trip and she got carjacked. When Michael decided that he wanted to add the beating and possible murder of Elise's boyfriend as well, the 23-year-old kid said, nope, I'm out. He even originally kind of planned on taking the gun and the money and ripping him off, obviously not murdering anyone. Because he's like, he can't go to the cops. What is he going to do about it? But he said there was just something about him that was so unhinged and so like how he was just like throwing out other people he wanted murder that he's like, you know what? You can have the gun and the money back. I'm just going to step away from this whole situation. Yeah. Back at square one, they finally pulled on the right thread when an informant came forward saying that they knew somebody who knew somebody who had taken the hit job on Kathy Lissy. The person pointed them in the direction of 19-year-old Tina LaPlante. Tina was a new single mother. At the time that she ends up talking to the police, I think she had maybe a three-month-old. What? Yeah. And she was a sex worker who had gone on a couple of dates with Michael when she was in her second trimester. He, too, had asked her if she could connect him with anyone who would murder a couple of people for him for $10,000. He told Tina that he would give her $500 if she made the connection. Later that evening, she was at a notorious drug den in the area called the Tweak House when she asked a group of people if they knew anyone who would murder somebody for ten grand. This guy who was there, apparently buying or using drugs, David Wilson, said, I'll do it. So Tina arranged for a meeting between the two men. A deal was made, and Michael gave David money to get a haircut, buy a suit, and rent a car. He said that the hotel the woman that he wanted killed was staying at was a nice one, so he wanted to make David look like he fit in. Michael told him to rape Catherine, or at least make it look like a rape, and then to kill her no later than 8 or 8.30 on July 5th. Unbelievable. We've had a lot of these murder for hire plots, but I do not think we've had very many where the person instructs the killer to sexually assault their person. Yeah. And like, there's something about the grooming too, and like getting them dressed up. Like, that is really disgusting. It's really weird. Yeah. It's like perverse. Yeah. There's just something very unsettling about this man and this whole case. The police immediately pulled David Wilson's record and they found a mugshot from an unrelated arrest. And what was really bizarre was that David and Michael looked exactly alike. So that's who she saw in the lobby. Uh-huh. 100%. So yeah, all the pieces are coming together now. Now they're looking at this mugshot. They realize that that's who the clerk saw because they look so much alike, which is also, I think, very poor <laughs> planning to hire a it, man, that looks exactly like you. That's what your Harvard, Oxford degrees get you. <laughs> yes, really? Are you going to hire your doppelganger? <laughs> Doesn't seem like a good idea. Like that didn't cross his mind at all. <laughs> yeah. Tina said that she was still in touch with Michael, who was getting pretty nervous about the detective sniffing around. He had made an additional deal with David, who had killed Kathy. He did go through with it. That if they should get caught, 
that he would pay David $25,000 to take the rap all by himself. He said, here's what you do. You say, we were in a relationship as well during her open marriage. We loved using drugs together. We were partying. We're having drugs. We're having sex. And then I just lost my head. Something went awry. I went too far because I was all jacked up on the drugs. And you say, that's what happened. And they're not going to give you aggravated murder because there was no premeditation that you'll probably get manslaughter. So he's saying, you'll be out in a couple of years and you'll be $25,000 richer. So you should take this deal. It sounded like David was not necessarily going to take the deal, but he was going to tell him that he was going to take the deal. And so they're negotiating about this. So Tina LaPlante recorded phone conversations with Michael where they discussed David's nervousness about getting arrested and taking the fall and going to jail for him for this crime. And she was saying that she was afraid that if he didn't get some money to him right away, that he was going to lose his nerve, he might run. And Michael acknowledged that he was going to get some money to David and advised everyone to basically stick with a plan, shut their mouths and shut up. Simmer down. Simmer down. And the one thing that she said that kind of everything about this is obviously he's speaking like he has knowledge of the events, but nothing's coming across very direct, obvious about his involvement. The one thing that was really painful to hear, though, was that she asked him, are you sorry? And he said, no. Why are you? Wow. For this woman who had been his wife for six months. Wow. So that's the heartbreaking part to hear. So they're like, okay, I think we have enough to arrest him, but we really need to get some audio recordings of David admitting what he did, putting himself in that room, telling you how he killed her. And Tina's in a bad place at this point because she was the one that helped set up the whole thing. So they're like, you could also go away for this. So if you help us, if you wear a wire, you put yourself in these dangerous situations and then you later testify, you have immunity. But only if you get us the goods. Yeah. So she's got to go into a situation now because David doesn't want to talk on the phone. He wants to see her in person. As an additional grossness, apparently... Michael had thrown in having sex with Tina as part of the take the fall for me package. Like, I'll give you $25,000 and Tina's going to bang you before you go to jail. Wow. This is disgusting. Tina wanted nothing to do with this. So she really was not attracted to him. She didn't want to have sex with him. She's also scared. He wants to have sex with her. He thinks that he's hoping to meet up with her now so that they're maybe having sex. And she's wearing a wire, which means if he starts trying to take off her clothes... Yeah, and he just murdered the last person she knows who he raped. Exactly. So she's put in a very, very bad situation, but she does an amazing job. The investigators were like, you should go to Hollywood and become an actress because she was completely cool as a cucumber and convincing. And she even managed to get him to stay outside with her. It's freezing out. And the guy was like, it's freezing. Let's go sit in your car. Let's like go somewhere and talk and she was like nope I need some fresh air like she managed to like keep him outside where they could keep eyes on him and so she wasn't in an enclosed space with him so she did this incredible job managing him and just told him like what really happened because I heard some like crazy shit and I just wanted to see like what the real story was and he told her everything it is caught on the wire where he goes step by step what he did to Catherine that day in the hotel So first of all, he said that he got into the room very easily. It appeared that Michael had told Catherine to expect something, to expect some sort of delivery. 
so she was looking forward to this visit or this delivery or this present or whatever it was because he said to David, she thinks a guy named Steve is coming or something. So he, she had some idea that, that she was getting a gift from him and that she should open the door to this delivery man. Okay. And when she did, he got in and he closed the door and then he kicked her in the stomach to just kind of shock her and say, like, this is a dangerous situation. Something bad is going down. He said once he kind of had put her in her place that way, he saw her realize that her husband had done this to her. She said before he was able to gag her, how come Michael set me up? What are you doing this for? And what does he want? So she knew that this was what her husband did to her while he was gagging her. Trigger warning guys here for a rape slash attempted rape and just general hard stuff to listen to. I think you can just go forward uh, probably about a minute or so. David told Tina on the recording that he wished he had never listened to Michael when he told him that he had to rape her. He said that he was completely unable to successfully have sex with Catherine. He said, because when it came down to it, I just couldn't rape her. In fact, she had to help me get off. So this poor woman was in a, a terrifying position just trying to survive. At some point during this horrifying event, David decided to end it. And I don't really know how long or short this entire experience went on for because he had also made kind of a throwaway line to Tina that they had actually chatted on the bed for a little while. So this could have taken a lot longer than I'm summing it up as. But at some point he decided it was the time to end it. So he ended up pulling the gag down from where it was around her mouth to around her neck. And he used that to strangle her. He tightened the gag, like basically by twisting it and twisting it and pulling and pulling. And he said that she actually went to sleep within two seconds. He's like, it was only a couple seconds before she was passed out completely. And then I just kept twisting and pulling and getting up and walking around her to twist the gag tighter and tighter until he said that her eyes bulged out, her face turned purple. And then she started convulsing. And when she stopped, she wasn't breathing. And he was satisfied that she was dead then. Ugh. He said, however, when he had gagged her, he had tied some of her hair in the gag with the knot from the gag. And so when he tried to remove the gag because it has his DNA on it, his skin cells are all over it. I mean, I don't know if he was thinking about DNA in the 80s, but he knew he had to take that gag with him. Yeah. So when he tried to get it off of her, it was stuck to her hair, which is why... The hank of hair had been pulled out of her scalp because he had to rip it out to get the gag. That's just horrible. It's just horrible all Horrible. And, oh, my God. Could you imagine hearing that as Tina, too? Like, Oh, yeah. She's, like, standing there freaking out, listening to this. He's like, oh, so you want the details? And she's like, yeah, I mean, tell me everything. I just want to know. And she's clearly disgusted. And he's clearly trying to show off or he's getting turned on or he's kind of bragging about it and he's giving her these details. Well, luckily for her, she managed to sidestep that whole thing. He was like, well, where are we going? And she's like, actually, I got to go. I'll call you tomorrow, set up a date. And he's like, okay, it's part of our deal. And she's like, yep, see you tomorrow. And knowing very well that he was going to be arrested tomorrow. So the next day, the police arrested both David Wilson and Michael Lissy for the murder of Catherine Martini Lissy. 
Smug Michael was indeed very put out when David decided to not take the fall for him after all. And instead, he pleaded not guilty. Tina was given immunity in exchange for assisting the investigation and promises to testify at both trials, which honestly, I know she kind of helps set this up, but it sounded like he was going to find somebody anyway. And I feel like the work she put in bringing them to justice deserved immunity in this case. Michael's trial kicked off first in January of 1985. The prosecutor sought to prove that Michael was a degenerate con man who had wooed smart, ambitious Catherine with the sole purpose of acquiring money through loans from her family, connections with her work, and then by killing her for life insurance money after, of course, making sure that the business trip clause would be triggered. There were a ton of witnesses that could connect Michael to murder for hire, from Molly, the 17-year-old, to the 23-year-old kid who was the almost assassin, and then, of course, Tina, who was the state's star witness. Ex-wife Elise testified to the various plots, frauds, cons, and robberies orchestrated by Michael that she had been a part of, which the police also got confirmation from. She led them to a storage unit where all of the supposedly stolen stuff was residing. So there's proof of all of these insurance frauds. She also made it clear that Michael had told her that he was only marrying Catherine to gain access to her bank connections and wealth. And she did some really big damage to the jury's image of Michael by detailing his sexual peccadilloes and carnal appetites. This is also like very gnarly, guys. So trigger warning for sexual assault, sexual, God, I don't even know, like non-consent within partners and very troubling sex acts. So she said on the stand that he made her perform in group sex, anal sex, and BDSM against her desires or wishes. He attempted to even persuade her to have sex with a German shepherd, which she denied. What? That's how sick this guy is. Michael was fond of horse whipping her, leaving welts all over her body. And on one occasion, he had performed a golden shower on her and then forced her to swallow a mouthful of urine. Oh, my God. It's depraved. It's sick. And I only mention it because I was thinking about the jury listening to this, listening to this young woman that got in with him when she was 19 or 20 years old and whose life had been ruined by him and the control he held over her. And now she's on the stand and she's having to talk about these unbelievably humiliating and painful things. Ugh. Yeah, I also don't really know how you can walk that one back. If you're a defense attorney, where do you go from that? What do you, what do, you do? So what is their defense? Well, they weren't going to try to make him look good. There's nothing that can make this guy look good at all at this point. So their strategy was to argue that Michael was a known liar who boosted his own ego by exaggerating, by telling falsehoods and by engaging in a fantasy life, a rich fantasy life that included sex and also this image of himself as this dangerous bad guy. He said that he never wanted these dirty, lowly street people to take him seriously and kill his wife. They're not doing the fantasy defense, are they? So they're not saying that this was his fantasy, like it was like a fantasy that he wanted his wife killed. They're saying that 
while he was in this world with these people and he was hiring sex workers and buying drugs and going to these tweak houses and doing these things, that he was involved in a fantasy life. And so the things that he was saying, saying that he wanted his wife murdered and that he would pay somebody to have his wife murdered, was all just part of this liar's fantastical lies. <sighs> That's what they're trying to say. Is that like a new sequel to Harry Potter? <laughs> Harry Potter and the fantastical lies? <laughs> yeah. Yes. So he even got on the stand himself and said that... Oh, yeah, I lie about things all the time. I never in a million years thought that they would actually kill my wife. I was completely devastated by this. I loved her. And they brought up the fact that he had lied about Oxford. He had lied about Harvard. He had lied all about those, those things that he said that were so fascinating and interesting to her, that he had contracts with the Department of Defense, that he had done some work with the National Geographic Society. They followed all those leads down and the National <laughs> National Geographic said, we don't know him. He doesn't even have a subscription to our magazine. <laughs> we are in no way affiliated with that man. So yeah, the whole thing is that their defense is that he's a depraved liar, but he didn't mean to set up the hit on his wife. And so they also faced him on cross with evidence that he had paid Tina because he had given her an envelope of cash for David and his fingerprints were on the envelope. So they're like, wait a minute. So what did you think that envelope of cash was for if you weren't paying these people that you asked to murder your wife if that money wasn't for the murder of your wife? And he said that the money was only delivered after they murdered Catherine and because they had then threatened his life and that he had to pay them or they were going to kill him too. It's good that he has such a great imagination and fantasy imagination because then he can imagine being somewhere else when he's in jail. <laughs> uh, that is true. He's going to need his rich imagination. The prosecution said, you're right. Your client is a liar. He lied to his wife. He lied to the police. He's lied to everyone around him. And he's lying to you, the jury, right now. On cross the only time Michael didn't lie was when he admitted that he would lie to beat a murder rap. The prosecutor was like, would you lie to get out of jail for this? And he's like, oh, yeah, probably. That's not helping your case. Maybe this is the one time you should be lying. In closing, his defense attorney said, it's the Walter Mitty syndrome. He was living in a world of fantasy and could not determine the extent to which his behavior was dangerous. So I submit what you have here is an unintended extension of the fantasy life of Michael Lissy. Never in any of these schemes had he ever intended the death of another human being. He's a victim of his own mouth. <laughs> wow. The prosecutor closed by reminding the jury that Michael had been recorded saying to Tina LaPlante that he was not sorry for what he had done. He was a remorseless fraud. And this was the biggest fraud of them all the loss of someone's life, and a $200,000 insurance fraud case. After deliberating for five and a half hours, the nine men and three women of the jury returned a unanimous verdict. Can you guess what it is, Andy? Guilty. <laughs> Guilty AF. Michael was sentenced to the harshest punishment allowed at the time in the state of Oregon, who during this era did not have the death penalty. He was sentenced to life in prison. He would have to be there for at least 30 years before parole would be considered. Kathy's parents issued the following statement. We hoped he'd get the maximum, and he did. 
we wished he could have gotten the death penalty. With all of the wonderful people in Oregon, Kathy had to meet the worst. That's so sad. Gosh, and these types of bold-faced lying con men are just so good at what they do. They really are. I mean, we we go through their schemes after they're caught and we look at them and we're like, oh, what an idiot. But they've been lying so much and for so long and so confidently that it is so easy to see how anyone, including a very, very bright Ivy League educated finance whiz could get pulled into this. If she can, anyone can. I'm glad that we're doing this and there's so much awareness now about these types of scammers and schemers and murderers. Look for those love murder red flags. The day after Michael's conviction on February 8th, 1985, David Wilson pled guilty to aggravated murder and was also sentenced to life in prison with a mandatory 20 years served before he could be paroled. He was eventually paroled in the late 90s and, to my knowledge, has not reoffended. Michael tried his best to scam his way out of jail. He was one of those guys who's always offering to rat out people and give testimony in order to get a shortened sentence. And I guess that this one prosecutor kind of got like down the line with him a little bit about making a deal with him to get him a shortened sentence and get some testimony about his cellmate. And the police investigators or the um, AD who tried his case, I think, intervened. It was like, you can't trust anything this guy says. And then he did realize that he was completely untrustworthy and decided not to have him testify or extend the deal. And things were so bad that people knew he was a snitch that they had to actually relocate him to another prison for his safety. I was hoping you were going to say that they were just lying the whole time about helping him. (laughs) They're trying to trick him. Yeah. Nope. Snitches get stitches. They did not like him. So he was moved to another prison and he stayed at that other prison for, I believe, 30 years, just about. And he was eventually paroled in April of 2014. So he's out there in the world somewhere. Unreal. Yep. I think what's so infuriating about this case is that Kathy really would have made a difference in the world. She was so young. She was only 26, but she was already so successful. She volunteered. She inspired. She worked with women's groups. There's just so much she could have done, and there's so so much brightness and promise that was there, and she had such a will to succeed and live and do kind things for people. It's insane to me that meeting one bad guy one bad guy it should be just a story to her daughters in the future about looking out for that type of guy in the future and the time she accidentally spent six months married to a con man before she figured it out it should be a cautionary tale and it shouldn't be a true crime tale and that's i think what sucks so much is that she lost a future of giving and succeeding and loving and her parents lost the she ability. Didn't lose it. I mean, it was she taken. Was taken yeah, her. it was yeah. taken from her. And it was taken from her parents watching their bright, beautiful daughter succeed and thrive in life and meet all of the milestones. I mean, forever. Every wedding, every family event, there's a hole in your heart. So, I mean, they're all tough. And for every story, it's that case. But it's just the senselessness of this, the greed and the depravity. And the fact that he had kind of everything mapped out from the beginning is that's what makes it so heartbreaking. Yeah, it's infuriating. 
in conclusion, you probably shouldn't go around willy nilly just asking everyone you've just met if they would be willing to kill people for money for you. Yeah, no, and probably not the best idea hiring someone who looks exactly like you. <laughs> I mean, I can't believe do any dirty work ever. The, I mean, the, it's the like, police were like, "You were there," and he's like, "No, I wasn't." It's like, why did you hire a guy who looks exactly like you? Oh my god. Ugh. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye. 